to Ephesians chapter 4. I want to read from verse 25. It's on page 1176. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Now, it is very difficult for me to teach this because of my limitations, but also because of yours. Because how you listen is really important. Sometimes we don't listen at all. Our minds are elsewhere. Sometimes we hear what we want to hear. You may be feeling in a bad mood this morning and you want to condemn yourself and everything you hear will be condemnation. Sometimes you want to excuse yourself and so all you hear are excuses. Sometimes you want to sit in judgment or as I said, you may not want to listen at all. There are other things that are on your mind. Now these verses that we look at are really practical verses. They are not, though the difficulty for me is they are not moralism. I put it the title there, Truth, Temper, and Theft, uh, just discussing this at the, as people were coming in. And uh, I said to one child about li- stealing and lying, and I said, do you ever lie? Do you ever steal? Uh, to which the answer was no, and to which my response was, you're a lying, thieving Torag. But uh, that's... It, it, it sounds as though we're just going to say to everybody, look, we all steal, we all tell lies, we all, and, and that we're going to do the kind of therapy thing, which is not good therapy, which basically says, stop it, don't do it. Google Bob Newhart doing his psychiatrist thing, it's absolutely brilliant. He just says, stop it. And we think, well, this is what we're going to be told. Now, this is not what we are being told. All of this, if you look in the earlier part of the chapter, all of this is based on what we are in Christ and how Jesus changes us. And you might be here and you might not be a Christian and perhaps deeply ingrained into you are in the words of the verb, which is a long time ago, I can't change. I'm a million different people from one day to the next, but I can't change. If someone tells you to change, you can't. But to actually be changed by Jesus, that's what we're looking at. Paul very easily moves from lofty theology to practical example. Too many people try to be practical without the theology. And too many people take on the theology without trying to work it out. These commands that are given here refer back to what Jesus has done for us that we were just singing about. And they they refer forward to what he will still do to us. These commands concern all our relationships. Holiness is not a mystical relationship experienced in a vacuum. If you break these commands, you destroy the harmony that exists within the church, within your family, within your other relationships. In each of these commands, Paul gives a kind of negative prohibition and then a positive command. It's not enough to give up stealing, for example. We must also work. It's not enough to stop telling lies. We must start telling the truth. And then in each of these commands, we're going to look at three of them, there is a reason is given. So you've got doctrine and ethics and belief and behavior always going together. Well, let's look at the first one. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. 
Now, let me say something to the boys and girls. I'm not going to ask you if you've ever told a lie, because I know you have. I'm going to tell, but I'm going to tell you something. I've told a lie. And I'm going to tell you something even, even worse. It's, I've told a lie this week. In fact, it's very difficult for me to go through a day without telling a lie. And I'll tell you why. It's not just saying something like, have you cleaned your room? Yes, I've cleaned my room. That's not me, by the way. Annabelle doesn't ask me that. But, um, well, she does, actually. And maybe, maybe sometimes I'd be inclined to say, yeah, I've cleaned it, but it's a lie. I've not really cleaned it. You know, that's a lie. That's one kind of lie. But there are other kinds of lies as well. Like when you pretend to be something that you're not. That is a big, big lie. So, you know, I might pretend something with you and I don't mean it. That's lying. There's all different kinds of lying. The, Paul uses a word here, the Greek word, pseudos. We've, we get pseudo, uh, that idea of being fake. He's a fake. Here, Paul has probably this idea of idolatry, where um, they'd use a statue and they'd say, it's, just, it's a lie, a statue that you bow down and worship to, that is a lie. There are all kinds of lies. Now, if you tell one lie, there'll be many that follow from them. For example, I'll go back to the boys and girls. When I went to secondary school, when I went to first year, first of all, I was really, really scared because I'd come from a small country village. And I went to secondary school, and I had to go on a school bus, and everyone was smoking, and uh, people were boasting about what they did. And in my first day in class, someone came up to me and said, what music do you like? And I thought, I don't know any music. And I'd heard someone say the word, the Beatles. So I said, I like the Beatles. Oh, they're great, man. Do you really like them? And I mean, this was like 1972. So the Beatles were gone. But I was saying, oh, yeah, they're brilliant. I'd never heard. I didn't know anything about the Beatles. I knew a song called Yellow Submarine, and that was it. So I went home straight away, and I, I took some money, and I went, didn't steal it. I went and took it, and I bought a Beatles record. And actually, I really did get into the Beatles. I ended up buying all their albums. But why did I lie? Why did I, why did I say I liked the Beatles? Because I wanted to try and fit in. And a lot of times, we can do stuff like that. We can exaggerate, we can tell half the truth, we can tell what we call white lies, we can think wrongly. All of those things are included in this don't live falsely. Now on the positive side here, we're told we're to tell the truth. We are to replace lying with the truth. We are to seek out the truth. Ultimately, of course, Jesus is the truth and we profess to be his followers, so we should be known for being honest and reliable. And the reason that's given here is we are all members of one body. A lie is an attack on the body of Christ. When we pretend to be something, when we lie, when we cheat, then it destroys our fellowship because fellowship is built on trust and trust is built on truth. And lies undermine fellowship, whereas truth builds it up. The preacher, the early church preacher John Chrysostom says, if the eye sees a serpent, does it deceive the foot? If the tongue tastes poison, does it deceive the stomach? In Colossians 3 verse 9, do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. I guess I would put this in a, in a, in a very simple way to all of us. Quit faking it. Quit pretending. Quit pretending to be 
what you are not. What I did in, in secondary one, lots of people do in church. They hear religious language, so they pick up the language, and they think the things that they're supposed to say. And we end up just being fake. And it's, it's just no use to anybody. Sometimes we don't tell the truth because to actually go and say something to somebody uh, would be really, really harmful. You know, but sometimes, well, but whatever we do, we mustn't lie about it. And I think that um, we as a fellowship and the Christian church as a whole, we need to examine ourselves and just to look and say, am I being like Jesus? Am I telling the truth? Am I living the truth? Am I an honest person? I, uh, it has its advantages. I went down to get some fish and chips the other week, about three weeks ago, and I put my hand in my pocket, and those of you who've been out for a meal with me will recognize this, I didn't have enough money, but I didn't have anyone with me to pay, so it was like £5.40, so I said, ah, it'll have to be a sausage supper instead of fish and chips, and I'm sorry, and uh, Dora, Dora's fish and chips said, no, no, it's all right, ah, Davy, you're fine, you like Italy, so I said, yeah, I love Italy, um, and he said, <laughs> he said, you bring me the 40, I'll take the five pound, you bring me the 40 pence. Now Dora's really tight with his money, he checks with everything, you know. And I thought, oh, I'll never remember. And I went back and said to Annabelle, and she said, go down straight away because, you know, you'll never remember. And I said, yeah, yeah, I'll remember. And I forgot. And I was down getting some fish and chips this week. And as I walked in, I realized, 40 pence. So I felt so, so righteous, giving over the extra 40 pence. Dora, here's what I owe you. And he was just, he just laughed and he smiled. And he said, I knew you'd do it. And I thought, oh, I didn't. Um, but it wouldn't be great if people just knew that we were honest, that we wouldn't cheat, we wouldn't lie. Because we live in a culture where it is endemic that people don't. Let's look at the second one. Temper. And again, I'll ask the boys and girls if you have a temper. I'm not going to ask you to answer because we have different kinds of temper. And I'm not sure how you show your temper. Walk out the room, shout, slam the door. Part of becoming an adult is you learn to control your temper a bit better. Not entirely, but you do learn to control it a bit better. Well, here, quoting Psalm 4, verse 4, the apostle tells us, in your anger, do not sin. We live in a world which is becoming increasingly angry. There's this wonderful magazine called The Spectator. And this week, their cover is a cover that says The Age of Rage. And it's talking how, and of course, the Americans get blamed for everything, but it's talking how this kind of, the, the expressing anger in public has now become the trend within the United Kingdom and within Europe. There's a great quote from that article. I'll read it to you. It's up there on the screen. The trouble is that anger can become a way of life. The internationalized new anger, prideful, ostentatious, performed anger, is a kind of self-medication in which those who feel powerless try to inflate themselves. When you find the world fractured or senseless or beyond the reach of reasoned ways to set things right, anger may seem the right tool, the hammer that knocks down all the nails. Not so long ago, we possessed a collective wisdom that counseled us against promiscuously swinging that hammer around. Civilization, in the best sense, calls for restraint but we found the satisfactions of hammer swinging are irresistible. Anger comes into us so quickly and so easily. There are people 
who are very openly angry people. We, we classify it in terms of temperament. In our kind of racist way, we talk about someone having a Latin temperament. They're very emotional and very angry. And we talk about British people as being stiff upper lip and stoical. Yeah, right. All that that means is that the anger is bottled up inside. And, and, and we live lives that are full of anger and of bitterness. Now, in the Bible, there are two kinds of anger. There is the righteous and the unrighteous. In verse 31 of this chapter, we're to get rid of all this bitterness, rage, and anger, it says. But in chapter 5 and verse 6, we're told about the anger and the wrath of God, which by definition is clearly a good thing. There is a place for a great deal more anger in our lives. Sometimes we are too apathetic. There's a film uh, going to be shown in the gate this coming Saturday at half past seven, Nefarious. Um, I recommend you go and see it. But if it doesn't make you angry, there'll be something wrong. It's about human trafficking. It's about how particularly women and girls are being sold into slavery throughout the world. It's the third biggest trade in the world. Slavery is now the third biggest trade in the world. It is absolutely astounding. And that should make us angry. Sometimes we don't express anger because we don't feel it. Sometimes we don't feel it because we're cold and cold-hearted. And sometimes, of course, it's very personal. It just builds up and becomes an explosion. However, when we talk about anger, we need to remember our fallenness and our weakness. We are prone to extremes, to intemperance and to pride. We are to be on our guard against this anger. That's what we are told. Do not give the devil a foothold. It's very easy for me to think of my anger as righteous anger and other people's as petulant bad temper. Anger which is pure is very rare. Even our holiest words and emotions are spoilt by sin. We should be slow to anger. James 1 verse 19. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. And we do have to learn self-control. So he gives us three negatives. Don't sin. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. Don't nurse your anger. The word he uses for anger, orge, is a word that he describes as developing into what he calls paraorgasmos. That's the word used at the end of verse 26. The foothold. You, you get angry. You give the devil a foothold. It leads to resentment. Now, let, put, let me put this a very, very simple way. Never go to bed angry. You, uh, a child, sometimes a child might say to you, if you're a parent, I'm angry with you and I'm not speaking to you. And that's great because a child will be angry with you and five minutes later, that's fine. I've got over it, usually. Some last a bit longer, but most don't. But you know what grown-ups do, which is far, far worse, is we take the anger... We go to bed angry, we get up, we go through the day, and it's there, and we are still angry. There are people that, that I think about sometimes that I've been angry at for a long time, and you just bury it. When you see them, you remember, I remember what you did to me. Now, I'm going to get you back at some point. We are not to nurse anger. Anger festers and breeds worms, an unforgiving spirit, sharpness, grudges, irritability, hostility. 
we need to get up each morning carrying over no feelings of hurt or anger from the day before. You know how when you do sums, boys and girls, and it goes like, you know, 2 plus 2 is 4, and when you get into more complicated sums, you've got leftovers, remainders. Some of us who are adults, what we do is we keep remainders in terms of our resentments and hurts and angers. And that gives an opportunity to the devil. The devil loves to lurk around angry people, hoping to exploit the situation by provoking to hatred and violence and thus breaking fellowship. Hebrews 12.15, see to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. I walk in the grace of God. I love the grace of God. I love hearing about grace. That's great. But you can miss the grace of God. How is that possible? It says there, Hebrews 12.15, see to it you don't miss the grace of God. Why? Because the grace of God does not live with people who do not show any grace themselves. Cannot live with that grace for long. Because if you're being graceless and hating and and resentful, then, then you're saying to God, you don't get his grace. You don't understand his grace. It's almost as though you don't want, want his grace. Do you really want to be the person walking around with a permanent chip on your shoulder? How do we deal with anger? Well, too much to say in such a short period of time. But why not ask, why are you angry? What's caused you to be angry about this? I've quoted this before, but I was really fascinated by this, that A report by clinical psychologists said that in communication between two people, the message that is transmitted works out as 10% dependent on the words that are spoken, 35% on the tone of voice, and 55% on the body language, gestures, and facial expressions. And you think, no, how can that be? Well, I'll tell you how it can be. Because I can say to you, for example, God loves you. Or I could say it anyway, God loves you. And my body language and the tone of my voice and the way that it's being said can be said in such a way that it communicates something very, very different. So why are we angry? Why do we point the finger? Why do we, you know, just rage in so many different ways? Proverbs 30 verse 33 says, For as churning the milk produces butter and as twisting the nose produces blood, so stirring up anger produces strife. We went to see a marvelous film last night. Um, I think it's called Where Do We Go Now? It's in French. Well, it's actually in Arabic, most of it. It's down at the DCA. Well worth going to see. And it's about a group of people living in a village, I think, in Libya. It's a Middle Eastern village anyway. And half the village is Christian and half the village is Muslim. And it's really a piece of pro-feminist nonsense. But it's wonderful. Because basically the men are all a bunch of Neanderthal, angry, you know, they fight about anything. And the women are the ones who are trying to prevent it happening. Absolutely brilliant film. Absolutely loved it in every single way. And makes you think a lot about God, Jesus, religion, violence, war, and everything else that comes in there. But one of the things that struck me in terms of this thing about anger is how easily it is for something to build up into something that becomes violent and and just keeps going on and on and on. What would you say to somebody who said, I'm angry, I'm hurting? How would you respond to them? Pain makes us angry. There are other causes as well, frustration and disappointment. Sproul, R.C. Sproul, in commenting on this, speaks of misdirected anger. 
He talks about how um, there's a, a woman at home having a bad day and her husband comes home and she bites his head off. Or he talks about a situation where you have situational anger in frustrating situations where you have no control. So there's an awful lot of very angry Christians because we live in a non, an increasingly non-Christian culture and Christians get angry. But no, we need to watch our anger. Um, we've prepared, some of us are going on a, a picnic afterwards. You prepare everything to go on the picnic. Well, we go, the, you know, let's, we head out to Maniki and it starts chucking it down. Who's going to get angry about that? Somebody will. Well, what's the point of getting angry about it raining? You know, when you think about it, you've got a lot of very angry people in Scotland. You know, you can't, yeah, th- there's, but we do that. And if you think about that in lots and lots of different, you know, um, the words of the song, why does it always rain on me? Why is it always me? Why are bad things always happening to me? Why me, me, me? And I'm angry, angry, angry. And you know what you do when you do that? You're giving the devil a foothold. And Paul says, don't do it. Look at Jesus. If anyone had a right to be angry, he, he, he did. And at times he was. When he went into the temple, for example. But on the cross, he could have been raging. He could have called down 10,000 angels. He could have wiped out the Roman soldiers and the Pharisees. He could have done all of that, and he could have done it justly, but he didn't. Instead, he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. And we are to copy Jesus. Third one. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Now again, boys and girls, we, we all steal in some way or other. And we have to try and avoid doing that. When you're very young, you soon learn that the fact that all the sweets are there in the shop and they're just at your level doesn't mean that you can take one and walk away with it. Because that's sometimes what we do. But there are many, many different kinds of stealing. I suspect most people in here have not stolen in the sense of broken into a house or shoplifted in the past week. Maybe you have. But I think most of us won't have. But most of us will steal in other ways. And he lists something here. He says you need to work. You must work for yourself, not just for yourself, but so that you can benefit the community. John Stott says about this that none but Christ can transform a burglar into a benefactor. It's wonderful when you see Christ working in someone's life so that whereas before they stole in order to feed their drug habit and so on, they are working in order to provide for other people. Now, I have to be careful here. I know that there are people who can't work. But I don't believe for a minute that 25% of people in Dundee are so invalidated that they can't work. Because that's what the statistics say. 25%, one in four people in Glasgow and in Dundee are on invalidity benefit saying they can't work. There are people who cannot work, who genuinely cannot work and need to be provided for, of course. But there are people who've grown up in a culture which says, someone will pay. Someone has to pay. Someone has to look after me. Someone owes me. And Paul says, no, as a Christian, remember this. You have responsibilities primarily, not so much rights. And work. There's something very satisfying in doing creative work. It's one of the great things about being able to work. And it's one of the tragedies of there being so much unemployment. There are people who can't get work. We have people in our own fellowship who we pray for that they would be able to get work. 
but not being able to work is, it is difficult. 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 6 to 9, we were not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well because you'd become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. Paul says... We worked with our hands. He was a tent maker. So that you didn't have to pay for us to preach the gospel to you. It's extraordinary. How can we have moved from that to a culture where you get millionaire televangelists justifying their private jets and their expensive gold collected from the Lord's people? We we weren't a burden to you. Well, Paul emphasizes the dignity of work. 1 Corinthians 4.12, we work hard with our own hands. Acts 20.34, you ourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. We live in a culture, we're so affected by the culture, we live in a dependency culture. Now on the one hand you get sort of kind of very wealthy or middle class, well-off people who are well provided for and say, oh it's terrible, all these scroungers and so on. And they're wrong because there are lots and lots of people who need financial support and help. But on the other hand, you get other, other people on the other side who are going to say, well, you know, everyone's entitled to and why should they have to and this is my right and so on. If people don't work, then we don't, we don't make enough and there's not stuff to share and it's just a case of grabbing. And the ambition that every Christian should have is surely this. I'd like to be able to work so that I can provide for other people. Not so that I can get a bigger telly. Not so that I can grab this and get that and get that. But so I can give to others. That's part and parcel of the Christian life. When uh, Emma Jane was much, much younger, we were talking about Millionaire one night. You know, the television program Millionaire. And she said to me, Dad, why don't you go on Millionaire? So we can get a million. She had great trust in my ability uh, or general knowledge. She says, go on millionaire, dad, you'll get a million. And I, and I was just about to say, in fact, I did say to her, I said, what do you want a million for? And instead of saying a Nintendo or whatever it was then, which was very small, she said, so that you can give it to the poor. And I thought, oh, that's a great thing. I should go on millionaire so I can give it to the poor. Or maybe the buildings committee will encourage me to go on millionaire so that we can pay off this building or something. But... What a great perspective, though. Why don't you work so that you can get lots of money to spend on other people, to give to other people? Our desire, says Paul, is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. In the Christian culture, we don't say we get equality by taxation. We say we get equality by people sharing and giving. If God has blessed you with a good job where you earn lots of money, it's not because you are righteous and other people who are less well off are less righteous. It's because God has called you to share. You read all of 2 Corinthians 8 or Luke 6 verses 29 to 36, which are absolutely fantastic in terms of that. We, get, we, we work in order to give. You know, sometimes we're such hypocrites. The comedian Jimmy Carr mocking Barclays Bank for tax evasion whilst doing the very same thing. 
I've come across Christians who complain about church finances and giving and so on. And then lo and behold, you discover in one some way or other, they give nothing. They moan and they give nothing. We live in a spend, spend, spend culture. We live in a kind of screw the system mentality. We're like Rangers football players, not all of them, but some of them, who clubs gone bust, never mind playing for the jersey and support the club. I'm getting out of here and getting as much money as I possibly can because it's about me and what I can get. That's what spoils sport. And it's what spoils the church. And it's what spoils life. Jesus is our example. Jesus came and gave. And we as his followers just say, gimme, 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 gimme. And instead, our attitude should be such that we love Jesus so much, we trust Jesus so much, we want to follow Jesus so much that we are very, very happy to work our socks off for other people. Because that's all part, all of this is part of being Christ's kingdom, his new society and his new kingdom. Jesus did not lie. He told and lived the truth. We shouldn't lie. Jesus did not rage. He forgave. And Jesus did not steal or scrounge. He gave. Are we his followers? Well, let me tell you this. I'm not having a rant at any individual here or at you as a group. I'm looking in the mirror and I'm saying, I can hide so many different things. May God forgive me and may God forgive you because I get angry. I at times can live a lie and I can spend for myself rather than thinking about giving to others. It is part of human nature. It is part of the culture that we are in and it's part of what I profess not to be. And Paul knows that and he tells us this not to send us on a guilt trip, but to send us doing what Martin Luther said we should do every single day, repenting before God and rejoicing in Jesus Christ. It would make a phenomenal and incredible difference if Christians, if we were known as people who told and lived the truth that we were not hypocrites, if we were known as people who did not get angry, not hold grudges, were not bitter or resentful towards others. And if we were known as those who gave rather than who grabbed. May God grant that it would be so. Let's pray. Lord, we do come to you and we do confess. Because we do hold resentments and bitterness. We do get angry. We do live hypocritical lives at times. And we do grab things for ourselves. Lord, we ask that you would help us to overcome our selfishness and to realize that all our sins have been forgiven in you. And rather than that being a motivation to go out and sin more, it's a motivation for us to let go of our sin. We cannot change ourselves, but you can change us. And in love, you have predestined us. You predestined us to be your children. You predestined us to live as your people. Lord, we cannot be lost if we belong to you. So help us to live as those who have no fear of that, but who live rather to glorify you and to please you. If any of us have a, a bitterness or resentment against anyone else, teach us, O oh Lord, to forgive. Enable us to forgive. 
If any of us have become mean and dishonest in terms of what we do, in terms of how we work, in terms of who we provide for, if everything is always about ourselves, Lord, convict us and change us. May we be like Zacchaeus, who said that if he cheated anyone, he would pay them back four times. Lord, help us not to cheat you. We ask that you would help us um, just to be honest with one another as well and to live truthfully and to accept one another in the grace that you have granted to us. And if any of us do not know you, Lord, we pray that we would come to have a living and saving faith in you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.